We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades and compañeros, welcome to another edition of the Fifth Column Podcast. You're hearing the dulcet tones of Michael Moynihan and not Camille Foster because he doesn't care about you. Nope. He doesn't care about Gaza. He doesn't care about Israel. He only cares about himself. So I'm here with Matt Welch, who cares about all of those things. Which well, I'm, I'm growing the, the sympathy beard. That is quite a sympathy beard, yeah. by the way. It's pretty brutal. Uh, <laughs> you, but you, you look like Tom Petty with that beard. It's a Tom Petty, like... Blondish beard. I'm not going to back down. So um, a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about the tragedy that is unfolding in the Middle East. And at the end of the episode, we said that, you know, we're all kind of agreeing on this. Um, We're all coming from a very similar place. And we need to not do that for your sake, listeners, and for our sake, to get other people involved who might not share the exact same views as us and uh, to push back on some of the things that we say and we can push back on them. And so we came up with the great Matt Duss, who is, um, you know, I haven't seen him in a long time, but I, I, I used to be pals with him in some ways. See him around D.C. You too, He's Matt. got a terrorist beard. He does. He does. That's a, it's really that's I mean, I actually just reported him under the table with my phone. You didn't see it. Um, that's uh, what the knock at the door is. Yes, it just, <laughs> they said they'd wait till we were done. Um, Matt is the vice president of the Center for International Policy. And I have to say that I had to ask him before we started because he has a million credits in Bennett, everything tank and was a foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. Is that also true? That is correct. That for is uh, about five and a half years. I was Bernie's advisor. Yeah. Oh, wow. Now, I met him on the Nader campaign in that's 2000. Wild. Wow. Were you doing foreign policy for Nader or what were you? No, I was doing basic grunt work. No, no, I mean, I was answering phones, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) that was, yeah. Well, well, we really appreciate it. Thank you for George W. Bush um, for your, um, all your, (laughs) all the things you did for neoconservatism. I I accept your (laughs) condemnation. (laughs) Um, All right, Matt, there's so many places to start. Why don't we start in... Just because you, um, right before we started, you said we're all on Twitter. Um, unfortunately, we are. I don't tweet very much anymore, but I still observe far too much, and it drives me crazy. So and let's talk a little bit about kind of the information war, the media war that we're seeing, just because we've all been overwhelmed by this story about yeah. the hospital bombing. Yeah. What was it? Who did it? Who screwed up? Um, and who to trust in this conflict? I mean, it's very hard to be on the ground, and particularly in Gaza, and understand um, what is actually going on. So when you saw this uh, unfold, what do you kind of make of this in a kind of broad brush way? I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of yeah. kind of facets to the story, but h- how did you come away from that? Just the hospital story? Yeah, just the hospital and just how the so, media handled it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had, you know, a friend who texted me when the news broke. Um, you know, people reporting the, you know, 500 dead from the Gaza health ministry, which we, we, we all know is, is controlled by Hamas as are all the government agencies and, and offices in, in, in Gaza. Um, but just those 500 killed and a hospital was staggering. Um, you know, and of course from there on, it's like, okay, how did this happen? And everyone is, you know, doing their detective work. Um, you know, I kind of held back. I wanted to, to find out what was going on. A lot of people just went forward to, with these assertions. Um, and I will say part of it was, you know, a, you know, Israel has carried out attacks 
with you know huge casualties. Um, the, the rhetoric coming out of Israeli leaders, like calling you know Palestinians animals, um, suggesting that all Palestinians in Gaza bore responsibility for Hamas. Um, I, I, I hold on quick, ground, quickly. I want to yeah. I want to interrupt you quickly. The, the second yeah. one I don't know. Um, I do want to challenge the first one though because I. That animal's quote was specifically about Hamas fighters that were killing civilians. So, I mean, I, I agree with them. I agree that those people are animals. I don't, I don't believe it was, it was um, Palestinians as, as right. a whole, well, I would, I would, like I would obviously recoil sure. from and think was disgusting. Yeah, fair enough. I would say, like, there were a number of statements from a number of Israeli leaders, um, including, um, you know, Isaac Herzog, the president of Israel, who, who I know, I consider a friend, that really shocked me, like, t- suggesting that you know, the Palestinians, well, they could have risen up and overthrown Hamas, which is, which is total bullshit. Um, you know, but suggesting that they, you know, they bore responsibility. So I, I bring that up just to say that the ground had been kind of prepped to, for something like this. And I think that's why people, in addition to past experiences with, you know, mass casualty bombings of this sort, were ready to believe that. Um, you know, it turns out, I, as the evidence mounted, it seems pretty clear at this point that it was a misfired rocket, and the, the, the casualty count was was far lower. Um, you know, but again, it was, I think, in the shorter term, a successful, you know, kind of disinformation effort by Hamas. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you um, personally avoid the trap? Um, uh, or put it in a more positive way, where do you go um, uh, on yeah. like a short list of, I know this person is an honest broker, whether or not I believe uh, in their ultimate analysis of yeah. the region? Like, how do you go for, well, for yeah. news? No, it's a good question. I mean, especially since Twitter slash X or whatever we want to call it these days is a, is a garbage fire. Um, you know, but there are people who I trust. I mean, someone like Greg Carlstrom, who's, who covers the region for The Economist, I think is always dependable. Um, there are other journalists, um, um, from Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, there, there are Palestinians like my friend Dalia Hatuka, who is, who is based in, in Ramallah, um, who I think is, is, is a good source. Um, another is, uh, a, a fellow named Omar Shaban, another good friend who, who runs a, a small think tank in Gaza called Palfink. Um, fortunately he has been able to get out to Cairo. Um, but those are just a few of, of the people that I, I, I rely on. I heard you on uh, Bill Maher, and I thought you did a, a very good job, as did our friend Jamie. Um, and uh, I found the whole thing, uh, and I said this on our previous e- episode, really a pretty interesting conversation, including Maher himself being pr- kind of rattled. And I appreciated his yeah. his sense yeah. of like emotional resonance and also yours yeah. uh, in, yeah. in talking about that. Um, uh, I ended up taking much more nourishment from your debate over like history and policy than I did yeah. about campus stuff. Um, yeah. and kind of domestic reactions. Um, did I, do I remember correctly in hearing you say that Israel, from your point of view, and your point of view has been much, you know, very sympathetic to, uh, Gazan's plight over the years, um, yeah. than, uh, maybe your run of the mill Israeli. Um, did I, do I remember it correctly that you said that Israel has a, a right to remove Hamas from running Gaza? Or is that a mis- uh, Well, I think that, well, I mean, at first I'll say they obviously have a right to respond to the atrocity that we saw. Um, you know, they have a right to go after the people who carried this out. Um, in the same way the United States had a right to go oh. after Al-Qaeda and dismantle them and, you know, and just destroy their ability to attack us again. Um, I think part of the challenge right now is the Israelis have yet to describe what ending Hamas looks like. 
And I know that this is something the administration is also very concerned about. Um, because, you know, part of, you know, if we're going to take the laws of war seriously and international law, which I think we should, um, you know, questions of proportionality and protection of civilians rely on, okay, what are you doing and does it match the, the stated goal? Um, does it, have you attached ends to means? And again, this is a very clinical way of talking about something. We are talking about human lives here and I want to recognize that. Um, but they have not yet described what that actually looks like. And I also want to take a step back here and note, um, you guys may have seen a couple of weeks ago, there was a report in Haaretz that, that, you know, using notes from a Likud party meeting in 2019, where Netanyahu said, and I'll try to be as close to verbatim as I can, anyone who wants to prevent a Palestinian state needs to agree with bolstering Hamas in Gaza and providing them money, because this helps to keep the Palestinians divided. Gaza and the West Bank, controlled by Hamas. Fatah in its, you know, set of enclaves in, in the West Bank. So, you know, bolstering Hamas has been a strategy of Israel's, not just Netanyahu's. I mean, this actually goes back originally to the 1970s, a divide and rule strategy. Again, that is, of course, not to justify anything Hamas did. No one should ever do that. But understand that they were there and being sustained as part of a policy to keep the Palestinians divided and down. What? Yeah, I mean, it was it, that Harvard's piece and that particular quote I have seen um, a lot in the past couple of days. And, you know, it's it's unfortunately taken on a um, Israel created Hamas kind of thing. But much in the same way after 9-11, there was all the conversation that, well, you know, we funded bin Laden, which you know obviously wasn't true specifically, but we funded the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So this is ultimately our responsibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as a, as a, you know, in, in pushback, if, if, if you want, Matt, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but when that started in, you know, when Hamas is kind of 19, late 1980s, and you have and the Fatan, first intifada, yeah. yeah, and the first intifada, and Fatan PLO, the PLO had been, you know, in all of its iterations, Black September, et cetera, had been the bane of Israel's existence, and, and they it, wanted to destroy it, and was having a very, very difficult time in doing so. And I've yeah. mentioned this before, Ronan Bergman's book, um, Rise and Kill First, is yeah. an incredible source for this. And by the way, I um, had a conversation. Um, with Rashid Khalidi, and this is a, a, another discussion we'll talk about maybe after, uh, Matt. And he even said he loved that book, and that's a book that everybody yeah. on every side can yeah, love. No, a, I know it's Ronan. A, it's, it is. It's, it's a great, great writer. It's a great straight thing yeah. of how Israel responds to a lot of these things. Yeah. And it makes it, when you but, read something like that, it makes a certain amount of sense. And obviously, it went unbelievably haywire that when yeah. terrorism was mostly a, a secular phenomenon, that maybe these crazy right. people would be a good counterbalance right. when you have. And look, and I have to say this, and tell me. I'd like to actually get um, Europeans. You know this region. You know, you know the actors involved in this. Fatah seems like they've come a lot of way towards Hamas's position in a lot of things too. Am I am I wrong yeah. about that? Well, I'll say a couple things. One is, you know, this strategy with Hamas. I mean, even before Hamas, it was the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood, the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, founded by Ahmed Yassin mm-hmm. in 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 the seventies and kind of the early mid seventies, um, and. Israel, the Israeli military um, kind of just let them grow. You know, they kind of did not tamp this down for the purposes of, you know, creating a counterbalance to, to drawing support away from secular nationalist Fatah. Again, I'm not going to just come in here and say that Israel created Hamas. I think that's far too simplistic. I will note that some Israeli journalists have framed it that way. Yeah, I've seen that. But yeah. I think at the time, it made sense. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if you're going to take, you know, from Israel's perspective, I will not defend it, but I it does make some sense. Then you had... 
in the course of the 70s and 80s and into the first intifada, you had Hamas basically grow out of the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood and assert itself as a much more obviously militant um, you know, movement um, using violence, using terrorism. Um, now, what you asked about Fatah, I think it's, it's interesting because I've actually had the opportunity to be in meetings with Fatah and Hamas as they debate this. And one of the issues, one of the criticisms, and I think you probably hear this on Khalidi, you, you heard this from, from Edward Said about the Oslo process, was that if you understand what the, the recognition that took place in, in, in the Oslo process, the PLO recognized Israel's right to exist. It accepted um, a Palestinian state on 22% of what they saw as historic Palestine. This was a really enormous concession from, I think, the Palestinians' point of view, certainly, but I think from anyone's point of view, to recognize that. Israel, in return, recognized the PLO's right to negotiate on behalf of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, this was not, in any sense, an equal kind of recognition, because, of course, the balance of power is massively in Israel's favor. But nonetheless, the PLO accepted it because they're like, okay, we can actually, after having kind of moved from place to place, from Beirut to Tunisia, living in secret, we can come back to Palestine. I mean, these guys had not lived in Palestine yeah. for many, many years. They, and so, you know, going back to Edward Said's uh, criticism, which is basically like they have sold the Palestinian birthright um, for, you know, basically, a, you know, a bag of beans so they can, you know, come and, and live as, you know, a de facto government on these small pieces of land. I mean, there were mistakes made by both sides since then, but I would just say that Said's critique turned out to be fairly prescient. Um, but the way this works into the Hamas Fatah debate is that ha ha one of Hamas's argument has been, listen, you gave up everything for so little, like, and that is part of why we are here. And that argument has a lot of resonance with Palestinians. They believe it is correct, even if they don't support Hamas's violence, when, which most Palestinians do not. So, um, but let me ask you a question, a practical question about today. And I think that, I mean, I mean, I agree with most of that and I disagree with probably 98% of what Khalidi says, And but he says something right. similar. And I, you know, how yeah. did we get to this point? Yeah. And Fatah, you know, the PLO, et cetera, same, same thing. Yeah. Um, their failures created the situation now. So right. when we have a conversation and the conversation you see is about proportionality, um, Israel should, um, a ceasefire should be, should be, I mean, it seems to be a very one-sided ceasefire. A ceasefire should happen and then, you know, everybody puts down their arms and, and you know, nothing changes, I guess, is the idea. Yeah. But the hard thing about this, and this is why I wonder from your perspective, of somebody who's very familiar with the Palestinian perspective, what does one do when you don't have a negotiating partner? One partner right. you need to destroy. Yeah. The Israeli public will take nothing less than the total destruction of Hamas and elimination of them in their so-called government. I don't, I mean, 2006, they had an election. That was the last one. And they right. ruled. Um, and by the way, you know, to those, and I'm going to criticize the people who I generally agree with, to those who say that Palestinians um, are, support Hamas, Remember that that was one election. They didn't even win a majority. They won a plurality of votes, and then they took over 40 and odd. half of Gaza's population was not born. Was not born. Was not born. There's, there's a very young pop population in Gaza. Yeah. But so at this point, when the destruction of Hamas is what is on the agenda, and something that every Israeli seems to agree with, and Fatah is a spent force. Um, yes. It is something from the 1970s. Uh, Abu Mazan 
is a... I think you're praising them too much. I, yeah, they're, they're useless in almost every way. And they've been useless in the West Bank. Like, who do you negotiate with at this point? Who, right. If, right. you know, when they're wiped out of Gaza, what happens then? Yes. I mean, a very good question. I just want to also mention something. Let's remember why Hamas ended up ruling in Gaza. Um, the Bush administration, after pressing the Palestinians to hold an election yes. um, that Hamas won mm -hmm. on running on an anti-corruption platform against Fatah, um, the Bush administration backed essentially a Fatah coup um, using, you know, um, just, you know, Fatah, the plan was to dislodge Hamas. Hamas got wind of it. Um, they acted first. Um, and there was a very brief but extremely violent civil war. They tossed Fatah out of Gaza, and then Israel imposed a blockade. So it's worth noting that, you know, add to that to the pile of Bush administration's achievements. Um, your question about, I mean, that question of who do they talk to, I think is important, because that is where we are right now. There is no movement, there is no voice, there is no person or set of people who can actually make commitments on behalf of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. Um, the reconstitution of the Palestinian national movement has to be a part of any strategy of dealing with this. And this, again, it will is it's tough. I mean, you know, if we've learned anything <laughs> um, in the last, you know, two decades plus, the United States doesn't understand the politics of this region. We lack the ability to kind of reach in and and create political change in these societies. But we can get out of the way um, just recognizing, you know, there was. You know, the, in, I think it was in January of 2021, at the very beginning of, of the Biden presidency, I mean, there was talk of Palestinian elections. Um, no one really wanted them, but they talk about this from time to time. Um, Biden, you know, and Biden just kind of gave a, a red light to that. And they were like, okay, fine. I mean, we need to enable that to happen. There needs to be some kind of, you know, we need to do what we can to at least get out of the way of democratic accountability and the expression of kind of, you know, popular consent. Um, amongst Palestinians and reconstituting that voice, a voice that can, you know, a, a set of people that can actually sit and end this fucking conflict. Uh, let's uh, just picking up on that America's role in the region question. We're recording this on Friday morning, East Coast time. You're, I think, at a terrorist meeting uh, somewhere <laughs> with, uh, with, the, with the reconstituted no, I'm at a conference PLO. <laughs> in, in, in Salzburg on, on, on the like future said, of Russia. And I'm telling you, uh, listen, this is the place where I'm at is was used for various exterior shots for the sound of music. Oh, you're I'm, literally in Salzburg. Like, oh, I wow. am in Salzburg wow. and you're I'm twirling I'm, on a hilltop. I'm freaking. I'm free. I am twirling. I will yeah. be twirling later. I yeah. twirled earlier. I'll twirl later. There will be more twirling happening. But, you, you know, you, I'm way, freaking you may, out about it. I want listeners to make of this what they will. Yeah. But Matos is very close to Obersalzburg, where Hitler's mountaintop retreat was. So I'm just oh, saying man, you yeah. you put the Listen. pieces together <laughs> if you want to. Where's the but child? I think there's something here. Where's um, the chocolate? Uh, Sorry, continue, Matt. Uh, so today or yesterday, in the last 24 hours, certainly a bunch of employees of the State Department um, uh, sent... Um, uh, some kind of uh, yeah. petition um, uh, uh, protesting the what they think is the uh, overly Israeli tilt of, of what uh, American diplomacy has done after the October 7th massacre. There was also uh, 411 congressional staffers uh, did something uh, likewise. Yeah. Um, unnamed, by the way. Unnamed. Um, that's going to get the job done. But um, – there is a uh, – I know from uh, relationships I have of, with people who have worked, for instance, for Human Rights Watch and some 
uh, people who have been in uh, journalism for a long time and who have um, friends in the State Department, there has been a sentiment among some American journalists, like activists, nonprofit type people, people perhaps like you, and that's where I'll get to the question, that uh, the root of America's problem, certainly in the Mideast, is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and perhaps the root of the Mideast conflict itself is Israeli-Palestinian conflict and that it that there is a, uh, if not quite a chief responsibility or but significant responsibility on the Israeli side and then the American backing side of it. Does that describe your yeah. view? Um, I think it describes the view of a lot of those people. Um, uh, and I, I've certainly mm-hmm. met people like that. Does that describe yeah. your view? It wouldn't describe my view. I mean, I don't think that the whole problem is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, there are a whole range of problems in the Middle East, some of which the United States has played a part in, some of which are completely unrelated to anything the United States has done. I mean, the region has its own problem, its own history. Um, Certainly, the United States has played a role over the past century in a number of ways, some good, a lot bad. Um, We are deeply implicated in the Israel-Palestinian issue because of our very close relationship um, with the state of Israel, which is multifaceted, which is you know deeply politically rooted, um, for a whole range of reasons, um, I think what you're seeing is a reflection of the fact that Democrats in general have progressively become more sympathetic to the Palestinian side of this equation. That's not to say this is anti-Israel. I think that's a wrong way to characterize it. I think it's saying, listen, we support Palestinian rights and Palestinian dignity along with Israeli rights and Israeli dignity. Some people, I think, on the farther left are just straight up pro-Palestinian. I recognize that exists as part of the left. Um, I think, you know, we saw comments from some activist groups, mainly college, but others that were, you know, sympathetic in a way uh, to the Hamas attacks, which I find disgusting and I condemn it and I'll continue to do that. But in general, I think what you're seeing expressed from these staffers on, on the Hill from you know some of this stuff we've heard about um, staffers in the administration is reflective of a broader party in which the issue of Palestinian rights has become part of the progressive agenda. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we talked about this when you know Biden came into office. <clears throat> you know, a lot of conversation about DEI and inter- intersectionality and stuff you'd never mm-hmm. heard from Democrats before. And right. if you have that stuff, you're yeah. probably going to bet that the the Palestinian position is going to be closer to. Um, you know, Matt's position than it would be to to APAC's position. Matt, a question that comes up in my brain quite a bit, because I've talked to a lot of people about this who don't live in the world that we live in and don't pay yeah. attention to this stuff yeah. and live in the world of social media. In- Instagram, uh-huh. I've seen a lot of my friends posting some crazy, crazy ass shit on both sides. And yeah. the question that that I would put to you, if somebody said this to you, if we take all the terms, open air prison, apartheid state, the wall, the et cetera, you know, these are this separate and unequal uh, society for Palestinians. What would you suspect? And I'm asking you to predict and you can you can dodge this one if you want. What do you suspect would happen if Israel opened all the restrictions in Gaza, allowed a, you know, travel, come come and go, no, no more wall anywhere, no more apartheid state, open, these are separate, these are separate uh, you know, uh, not a state as such, but there's West Bank and Gaza. Right. It's not integrated into a one-state solution. But if that were to happen, if all the things that um, progressives and and pro-Palestinian activists complain about were lifted, what do you think the result would be? 
Yeah, I think if you just lifted all the restrictions now and just had no measures in place, um, it's likely there would be attacks. I, I, so I don't advocate that. I think there needs to be a process through which Palestinians see that diplomacy and nonviolence is delivering. It is delivering an into occupation. It is delivering a better future. And I think that is part of the challenge we face now is that, you know, as Palestinians see it, the United States and the West said, stop terrorism, stop violence, join a diplomatic process, and that's a way to achieve your national self-determination and your freedom, your liberation. And what they feel that they, you know, they, you know, the PA stopped, you know, terrorism. You can make, you know, you can certainly point to points where Arafat and other members of the PLO continued terrorism. Um, there's no question about that. But in general, they see a having participated in a diplomatic process that has only delivered more occupation to them. So starting a process that shows engage in this process, there is a negotiation, uh, take these steps. And these restrictions will start to be lifted. There is a process you can engage in and support that will lead to a better future. And I think part of what, you know, just the tragedy of the last few weeks is that we have shown them the opposite. For a lot of these young Palestinians, occupation and blockade um, is all they have ever known. And that is a recruiting program for Hamas. There's a um, an interpretation. It's a narrow one of Joe Biden. I, by narrow meaning, I think I'm the only one who has it. Um, <laughs> it's very narrow. Goes a little yeah. something like this. Uh, <laughs> um, he was a supporter of the Iraq War. He came to regret that uh, support uh, a lot. In the Obama administration as vice president, he was one of the uh, uh, biggest voices for restraint in the exercise uh -huh. of American military yeah. in getting involved in Syria, which were we, you know, we forget now, but in yeah. 2013, we were about 36 hours away from, from yeah. actively getting involved in that conflict. Um, I don't know to what the, uh, you know, I don't think Joe Biden was the decisive reason why I think the vote in the, in the British parliament had a lot more to do with it than right. he did. But, um, I, I'm not sure people have caught up with where uh, Biden has moved on this issue. And I think it also uh, just America, the use of American power abroad writ large. Um, and I think this also gets to why it was Joe Biden and not Donald Trump that ended up withdrawing America from Afghanistan. Yeah. However, uh, that was you know done or accomplished and uh, how much it was botched, uh, depending on how you look at it. Um Looking at Biden's comments in Israel, his actions, um, my narrow interpretation is that uh, in his own brain, to the extent that that's a knowable thing anymore or ever, um, yeah. uh, he is really, really trying to stop the spread of this into a regional war. Like that yes. is his primary motivation, yeah. um, regardless of whether the steps that he has taken uh, taking are are getting there or making that uh, uh, le less possible. Am I crazy? What? Do you, what do you think about that kind of so, portrayal? So a few things in there. I would say that in general, yes, Biden. I don't know if I'd say he has ever fully accounted for his position on the Iraq War. Oh, certainly not. Um, <laughs> um, he still maintains that. Oh, I was supporting diplomacy, uh, which is why I was continuing to advocate for it until the end of two thousand three. But leave that aside. Yes, I think Biden has, you know, been a voice for restraint. You know, I think he was one of those voices in the Obama administration. I think his his withdrawal from Afghanistan reflects that. I actually think his policy on Ukraine has been 
pretty restrained. And I, I am constantly struck by how my friends in the kind of restraint community seem to be the last people to recognize that. Yeah, that's, um, a, could, that's <laughs> an interesting, uh, that's an interesting and, and little observed point. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think his approach to the Middle East um, has been, uh, you know, there's a few things. One is they want to spend as little time on the Middle East as possible. They want to spend as little time on foreign policy as possible. Um, they want to be focused on domestic issues, but to the extent that they're focusing on foreign policy, it's all about strategic competition with China. That's the lens through which they see pretty much everything. Um, so I would agree that, you know, his goal here and his trip to Israel was very much because they are freaked out about what Israel was considering. And so I think, again, I think his policy on Israel-Palestine has been an area where he is actually pretty ideological. Um, he, you know, whenever he talks about, it, I mean, I think he has this vision of Israel that I would kind of generously call vintage. Um, he has this meeting with Golda Meir that he constantly talks about, like almost literally every time he he talks about Israel. Did, did that happen? Do we it, think it that happened? happened? But he quote he he says she said something to him, which maybe she did, but it was a quote that Henry Kissinger used to say that Golda Meir yeah. said to him. So I'm not yeah. even sure if that actually happened. So. <laughs> but she let's said just it, say, she said it to Neil Kinnock. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I got that. That's I got that. Um, but um, so yeah, I mean, I think. That was the trip was there to go show support, of course, but also to kind of bear hug BB and say, don't do something really stupid because they were very concerned and are, I think, still concerned that there is no plan. So I think that was good. I praised him for that. I think what he did, he averted for the for the moment an, an extraordinary catastrophe. Um, but, you know, they're in a situation now that we've dispatched two two Navy strike group, car, you know, two carrier strike groups. Um, you are paying attention to the Middle East now. Um, mm -hmm. So your plan of not paying attention to the Middle East has has clearly failed. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also say, like, in my view, Joe Biden's approach, which has always been there should be no daylight between the U.S. and Israel. We should always publicly support them. And if we have criticisms or concerns, we will express them privately. I would say that approach is part of what got us here, too, hmm. um, because we, we in this equation, there is one side on whom we impose massive consequences with justification. There is another side to this that not only do we not impose consequences, we stop others from imposing consequences. And I think that has empowered the Israeli far right. It has put the wind at the back of the settler movement because they continue to carry out what are, in fact, pretty serious violations of international law, creating settlements and colonies in occupied territory, um, you know, militia violence under the support, under the watchful eye of the Israeli military against Palestinian civilians. This stuff is always ongoing. And I think that is what's hard for a lot of people to understand, like a, a mass attack of the sort that we saw on October 7th. People understand that, but what they don't quite understand is that violence against Palestinian civilians in various ways is a fact of life all the time. And it has been this way for many years. I, it's funny because I don't think that there's anybody that I have met. And if you, dear listeners, are somebody who is this person, please email me. But the people that are sort of broadly on, I guess I would say my side, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more pro-Israel than a lot of my friends are. Um, I, I can't find a single one of them that will actively defend the settler movement. Um, I, I don't think they speak up about it very often. I mean, I've yeah. been to a settlement on the West Bank, and it was a very odd experience. But since that time, which I believe was 2009, um, it has expanded greatly. But oh, I think yeah. there's two things here. And, 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 and Matt, chime in here if you think that I'm wrong about this. The first thing is I think this is actually an enormous blow 
to the right in Israel, to the Ben Gavirs and Smotriches, yeah. and Netanyahu, I think, is hanging on by a thread. But I think yeah. everybody is losing at this point. Yeah. Obviously, I think that, you know, people coming out in various uh, Arab capitals, in various campuses in America, yeah. celebrating this grade. It's like, this is a, the, the, the most temporary celebration ever you got through as you being Hamas, and then you wreaked havoc. Yeah. You're, this is not a, a strategy of holding territory. You're no. not, th that's not the goal here. And no. the goal here is to get pushed out very quickly and cause what? So I think it's a failure for both sides. But I guess that yeah. leads into a question for you, Matt. Um, you know, as people, as somebody who's sat in um, with some of the people probably involved in the process of formulating this attack. What do you believe that the goal was? I don't know about uh, that. <laughs> well, no, but you, but you said you said you sat on you've said it with, with with members of Hamas, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'm 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 assuming if, unless they've been assassinated, they were probably aware of this attack. And and I'm not trying to impugn you and yeah. say that you Thank are. You. Yeah. That's let's be very clear. Isn't that against? I will Matt, say oh, that Matt the, only supports Hamas. He doesn't plan the attacks. Right, no. I, I, what I'm going to tell you is that Hamas people do make Hamas hummus jokes. Yeah. Okay. okay. That is yeah. one thing I can. That's good. <laughs> All right, that'd be interesting. Uh, you listen. Yeah, but what do you think? What do you think? Uh, what would you guess uh, that the actual goal was here uh, uh, for uh, I, I of honestly, October? That's 7th. part of what troubles me. I don't know. Yeah, I, I really am just going to put that out there. I, I yeah, something like this. I think part of me thinks that I've heard Israeli colleagues surmise this as well is that they were shocked at how. Successful, quote unquote, was. successful, and yeah, not yeah, a word yeah. I want to use. But yeah, I mean, no, but I, we understand. Again, I mean, it's, going it's to like what nine eleven. Others yeah. have surmised that yeah. part of it is that they came through the fence, and it was so lightly defended, in part because a lot of the military had been redeployed to the West Bank to protect settlers. Right, there has been such an aggressive effort in expanding settlements and attacking Palestinian civilians that the military has been there in greater numbers, and they were redeployed from the Gaza fence line. That is part of it. Um, some have suggested that part of this was to induce an Israeli ground invasion because Hamas was tired of ruling Gaza. Yeah. I, will have not, I have not seen a really convincing argument. I've seen different ideas battered around. And again, that is part of what disturbs me about this so much on top of just the absolutely just staggering violence. Yeah, I think that that's probably the second of those two options is probably right. It's, it, it makes the most sense considering the actions of Hamas uh, before and since and yeah. the actions, particularly we can't ignore Hezbollah and which is a creation and a client yeah. uh, um, party in, in, in interior state within the state of Lebanon, Iran. And that when you're sitting there and saying for two years, we're not doing anything. We're, do, we're, we're fine. Which is another reason that, that um, the border was kind of lightly secured, not lightly secured the border itself, but there were actually not IDF unions down there ready to go, was that there was a complacency after a couple of years of not much action uh, from Hamas. But when you do that all in one push, I think the goal was twofold. And the goal was, you know, it was to kill Jews. That is 100% what they were trying to do. And that, you know, that's why you film it. And mm -hmm. that's why you do it in right. every single one of those settlements. It's yeah. not like there was one rogue me lie Lieutenant yeah. Callie right. element to it. That was to humiliate and murder and then provoke, I think, a response because but, the, the, you know, the, the situation was not changing for Hamas. And so why not create this situation and, uh, and see what happens? And look, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed by some of the reactions to this. 
um, in, you know, peeps of certain people that I know, you know, and again, we talk about college campuses, but it's much greater than that. It's also from professors that I've seen some really, really crazy stuff, European mm-hmm. capitals in Berlin. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just think that that gives sucker to, to people when they see that they're getting support, despite the fact yeah. it was a, it was a brutal mass murder. And that is not to take anything away from the legitimate uh, Palestinian cause, which I fear has right. been overwhelmed by. I, I agree with everything you just said. I cannot believe you just said that. I can't <laughs> believe you agree with me on anything. I mean, if I said, "Are you hungry?" and we were both hungry, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't say like, "There's no way that we are both hungry because we're so different." I'm hungry, but in a leftier way. <laughs> yes. There's an element. I think uh, I always think of this in terms of margin calls. Like uh, big, uh, awful moments um, tend to be like a margin call on Wall Street. Like suddenly you see where your positions were. So this, yep. in, in some levels, a margin call on, on some stuff that's been fermenting in academia yep. and on college campuses. Yeah. Um, I wonder, is this a could this be a margin call on the way that Iran uses Lebanon and in Gaza to to, to an extent, yeah. maybe other people do, and you know this stuff more, better than I do, as proxies, as like, um, yes, you live there and everything, uh, but yeah. we are going to use this in our kind of twilight yeah. struggle against Israel, which makes those states not really states. It makes them kind of vessels, it makes them pawns partners uh, to some degree, but is it a margin call on that approach? And if so, now what? No, I mean, I think, I mean, there was a Wall Street Journal article that was kind of quickly rebutted that Iran knew about this and helped plan it. Um, I've seen no evidence of that. Um, I know that, you know, the administration has certainly been trying to chase that down as far as I know. They have seen no evidence of that. Um, And it's also important to understand the difference in the relationship that Iran has with Hezbollah and with Hamas. I mean, they, the the relationship with Hezbollah is a strategic one. I mean, it is a, it is a very, very key one. Um, the relationship with Hamas is more one of convenience. Um, I don't want to understate nor overstate it. That has It has ebbed and flows. They had a, a big breakup when Hamas withdrew support from Bashar al-Assad because of his, you know, you know violent repression of the revolution. Um, they kind of made up since then. Um, but certainly there is support. There is a relationship. I honestly don't know what heads up or what role Iran might have played here. I do know that um, I there have been a number of very interesting statements from Iranian leaders distancing themselves from the attacks. Um, at the same time, they've also signaled that if this thing, you know, continues to get really bad, we will be forced to intervene. I think the administration is clearly taking that seriously, hence two carrier strike groups. Um, but that's how I would sort of characterize the Iranian role here. I mean, but they have, you know, they have, like so, I'm, I'm less interested in their fingerprints on the actual attack, yeah. although it's fascinating. And, yeah. and um, but more sure. of, I mean, Lebanon is not a, a fully fledged country in part of, yeah. because of Iranian support for Hezbollah, right. which is, right. um, you know, a stalking horse for a future conflict that might be opening up today. Right. No, I agree with that. But again, it's like Iran has been. This part of their security concept is we are going to create relationships with a lot of these groups so that if we have to, we can turn a lever um, and and create pain. And the other side knows the United States and its allies know that we have this capacity. I mean, they they, they have to uh, be very careful with this. I mean, they're obviously playing yes. the fire. Yes. Um, you know, the Israelis today are um, evacuating certain places in yeah. Golan and, um, you know, right. warning that I, I, this is going to expand. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is that 
again, not this is not to be taken as a compliment to Iran. I will not do that, but I will say that they have actually been pretty crafty in exploiting the the really dumb mistakes of their adversaries, mm-hmm. right? In exploiting the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, in exploiting the U.S. invasion of Iraq, in exploiting the Saudi war on Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, to build relationships with resistance groups in these places that endure. Yeah. And send rockets, apparently, towards... Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and also, I mean, it, it's incredible that in the American imagination, it never actually took hold that, you know, primarily because it became so unpopular so so quickly that the Iraq war and so many of the casualties that Americans suffered were directly at the hands of... Um, uh, whatever you want to call them, terrorists uh, that were controlled yeah. by Iran. I mean, it was essentially a proxy well, war with Iran. Some controlled, some just supported. I mean, some the, just supported, uh, the, the, some Iran's, controlled. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the thing about Iran's, I mean, I mean, I could talk for this for a long about this for a long time, but like Iran put money on every square, basically mm-hmm. in Iraq. Um, and it's you know, it, it, just for a moment on this, like think about what really from Iran's perspective, what happened. They had spent the previous two decades building up a whole series of organizations whose goal was to to make revolution inside Iraq when sure. possible. Exactly. And then the United States yes. knocked off the Iranian the Iraqi government for them just for free. <laughs> and their folks like literally rolled in right behind the track right you know in the wake of 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 the US and just kind of moved in and did what they had been preparing to do. Yeah. It is absolutely wild. I can't think of another you know historical example of anything like that happening. This has all been pretty grim and awful, and thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but I want here to please. I want to imagine. Uh, I, I want to. You know, I want it to be pretty to think so about something in the future that looks better. If we were yeah. talking here in 1973, we probably would not have been imagining uh, a handshake with uh, with Anwar Sadat. You know, we, yeah. there's a lot of right. things that we can't, we couldn't yeah. imagine. Um, do you have an imagination, uh, like a vision, a, a sense of possibilities of a good thing that could happen um, in the f- nearish future that was sped up yeah. by these awful events that are ongoing? Well, I think, you know, a, a refrain that, you know, you've often heard from people like me who <laughs> um, on this issue is that this status quo is unsustainable. Um, and for a long time, it has seemed quite sustainable. Various Israeli governments seemed to believe it was sustainable. Netanyahu himself, you know, wanted to make this sustainable. Um, if there's anything that good can come out of it, I mean, it's that, listen, you know, the U.S. has taken various stabs and attempts at brokering a resolution here. Um, the idea that we're just going to shunt this aside and bottle the Palestinians up will not work. That's not to imagine the United States alone can solve this. We cannot. Um, but the United States is the one party in the world that can offer Israel, you know, the guarantees and the backing that it will require to to really resolve this thing. Now, there's a lot of steps between here and there, but I do, I am always encouraged and just, you know, with, you know, in talking to Palestinian and Israeli colleagues who understand that ultimately they're going to share this land. That's how this thing is going to end. It might be a very long time. I hope it's not that long. Um, but you have two peoples with valid claims to a homeland, um, and let's just get on with it. Yeah, I, I, you know it's it's interesting to hear you say that. I'm glad that you do, because it is very hard to have conversations with a lot of people. I mean, you know, even academics on this issue who refer to people um, slaughtered in a kibbutz as settlers um, yeah. to conflate 
people in the West Bank who are, you know, extremists and uh, people who are mostly, by the way, peaceniks. They're mostly kind of lefty, yeah, right. uh, kibbutznik, uh, right. old labor Zionist types. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, that that attitude and the, the right. kind of shift in, in, in yeah. the way people think about this, not just in America, but obviously um, in the Middle East, too, is that, yeah. you know, God, it makes you um, wistful for the days of hideous monsters like George Habash, who at least, you know, was a, was a, was a Marxist or something versus Weird. people who you cannot uh, really have this argument and say what Matt just said, that there are two people that have valid claims as land and they are going to live there in a co yeah. like this is I, for people who don't believe that. And that is a lot of people that are making arguments that I've seen here in the United States and obviously Hamas, I said this to Khalidi that, you know, mentioned the Hamas charter. He's like, well, they updated it. And I said, well, you know, yeah. I, I, I believe that they probably still want to see the fall of and destruction of Israel. And I maybe people who are shouting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Don't know what that means, but I suspect they probably do. I mean, I think some people use it just to say end the occupation. Uh, that's real. Some people use it in a much more sinister way. That yeah. Israel should be gone. They should have another thing, though. It was like when people said, like, yeah. you know, uh, defund the police. Like, we didn't really mean that. It's like, yeah. well, don't, don't say it then. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> there is something I slogan? always come back to. You know, in, in terms <laughs> of just what, I, I, you know, the outcome I want to get to. I mean, I think when I was in, I've been to Gaza a few times. I was there the first time in 2012. And one of the people I met with was a young Palestinian tech entrepreneur, coder, you know. Um, and he was just saying, you know, you can't imagine what it's like to live 90 minutes south of one of the, the the world's like most important tech innovation hubs. Yeah. Tel Aviv, Herzliya, and not be able to touch it. I cannot go there. I just want to end this thing and just get on with my career, what I want to do. And I think that reflects the views of so many Palestinians in like one state, two state, just like I want a normal life. Yes, I mean don't I don't downplay, you know, the various historical grievances we never should these have great political and cultural resonance. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is something to work with. And my view of U.S. policy is how do we empower those people, not the worst people? And Matt, we've kept you too long. Let me ask you one final question on that very point. And this is, I think, one of the key points and one that is not often discussed because people don't really have the knowledge of what's going on on the ground in either West Bank or Gaza. And I think that you're more informed on this stuff than most people, is that when, when a friend of yours says something like that and sees, you know, this unbelievable tech hub that I've seen in Israel and Matt has seen and we've been into these places, and, and it's really impressive. I mean, I'm always impressed by ways. And I'm like, man, those Israelis can figure out how to get me home yeah. faster. Um, <laughs> why, do, do the people that you talk to not blame the leadership for not creating the circumstances in the situation where there can be innovation? I mean, Gaza's GDP has – like, I mean, it's gone from something really impressive yeah. to almost nothing. Yeah. And yeah, you can blame Israel for everything. But there is a certain amount of aid that comes in and a lot of international sympathy yeah. when you're in Gaza. What, that is squandered by yeah. psychotic politics that are tied to religious extremism, and that's my read on it. But do, do, does the average Palestinian say – well, okay, we don't like Israel. We don't like what's happening here. But, you know, our leadership is definitely not serving yeah. us. I think they absolutely do. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why these guys don't want to hold elections. Yeah. Because they know that you could, you know, you could, you know, run a slice of pizza and it would win against some of these guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but also, you know, and again, a, a very good friend of mine, the way he put it to me is, you know, he, he lives in Gaza and he was like, we have multiple jailers. We have Hamas. We have Fatah. We have Israel. We have the international community. These are all our jailers. I mean, they blame all of these people, all of these. Yeah. I mean, is it too simplistic when, and I think the answer to this is probably yes, but I mean, I do see a lot of people making this. And, I, and again, there's a lot of people who are just kind of you know, dipping their toe into this conflict now because all everyone's talking about. They're like, let me let me watch a YouTube video and get up to speed here. But um, the idea of rising up, I mean, ri of an Arab Spring type mm. event in the, the yeah. territories. Of, I mean, is that a possibility? No, I mean, both you know, Hamas and Fatah have been hard at work to prevent that possibility. Yeah. I mean, these are they're not real governments. These are, but these are authoritarian regimes in within the little enclaves that they are allowed to rule inside. And again, that is happening because, you know, that serves the interests of Israel and the United States. And it's, that's a real shame, but I, you know, not going to blame Israel for all of that. These are corrupt, feckless, venal leaders yeah. who have not served the interests of their people. Right. Well, Matt Das, um, thank you so much for coming on. And um, you can find him on Twitter, Matt Das, the Yasser Arafat professor of where, where, where is that? I'm kidding. I'm Joe. Come on, people. Let's go. You heard him. He's a reasonable guy. Uh, um, we thank you so much um, for coming on and giving our uh, listeners who have had to listen to us rail about this foaming at the mouth for the past couple of weeks, uh, a, a, a different perspective. Right, Thank very you, glad to. Thanks, thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Well, that was uh, Matt Duss, and he's gone, so we can't talk about him because we've been in get in trouble for that in the past. He really should shave that terrorist beard, Good though. Lord, my God, what's up, Mugnia? <laughs> Salzburg, you get that's where you get like the OPEC gives you the instructions about how to do all the murders. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly that's, right. So he was meeting with Carlos the Jackal, um, <laughs> who did convert to Islam, by the way. Carlos the Jackal converted to Islam. When I worked for United Press International, UPI, um, back when it was owned by the Saudis uh, in, the, in the 1990s, their big, the thing they cared about the most, and I was in uh, Bratislava at the time, uh, was uh, the OPEC meetings in uh, Vienna. Yeah, that, that was, was like, that's the big meeting. There was a. Um, hairdresser that cut Joanna, my ex's uh, hair in DC, whose father or mother was killed during Car the Carlos OPEC raid in Vienna. Oh. Yeah. It was like, she was like, have you heard of this? And I was like, have I heard of this? Gosh, I lived yeah, it. I, I have like beautiful mind, like plots <laughs> of the entire, like, okay, these guys came in this way. These guys came in this way. But uh, yeah, Matt uh, is interesting. Um, I thought that was going to be much more combative. And uh, he was very reasonable, and it's it's really it's good. More so, that you were very reasonable, you bloodthirsty. I, I was I was God. being reasonable. Um, no, but I, I just any of you who want to send an angry email, um, here's the thing. Go ahead. I'm not going to read it. Go ahead. Uh, I, I'm going to read it. Okay, you're going to read it. Uh, <laughs> but the purpose of this podcast is to get um, sometimes, hopefully, um, a lot of perspective from different people, and I think that was useful for a lot of. Uh, reasons and if you object to anything that Matt said, yeah, right, right in. But um, we appreciate him coming on, and we try to get people on here. I'm trying to get a few more that are in the kind of uh, different or orbit, maybe people that are a little more extreme than Matt. Got a lot of a uh, lot of requests out there in the world, so um, yeah, yeah. So we got a lot out there, and, and also I think we're going to come back to to Earth and be um, doing some some. I know you're hearing a lot about this conflict, but of course the president is in the Middle East. Uh, as Matt mentioned, the uh, carrier groups that are there, I mean, the United States uh, shot down, 
what, three missiles that were apparently coming from Yemen over Saudi, the Houthis, um, over Saudi. I think the Saudi shot down one too. So this is getting very scary. And the potential of a northern front with Hezbollah, which is basically with Iran, um, makes this a story that that obviously is worth um, talking about a lot. Um, we haven't spoken at all about Jim Jordan and all that nonsense, but um, God, it just like interesting. It really exposes how much like nonsense work Republicans and national Republicans have been making in America for a long time. Yes, I mean it's yeah. really. You, you kind of look the other way. Uh, but even today, um, some you know reporter or uh, congressman—I forget what, who—but someone asked Jim Jordan, "Like, do you think that the gen- that the 2020 election was stolen?" And he couldn't just say, couldn't "Yeah, say nah." Yeah, uh, he was like, yeah. "You know, there's a lot of irregularities about it." It's like, well, "Are you fucking clown pantsing with this shit still, bro?" Yeah. yeah. Um, on a national level, the Republican Party is a garbage fire, and uh, it's a joke. Yeah, uh, and. And if it wasn't, then we'd be looking at a for sure one term presidency and a pretty big swing back towards yeah. Um, yeah. Republicans, I think. Do you, do you have any sense, by the way, and I've been thinking about this a little bit, of how Biden's handling of this particular crisis in the Middle East will, will I don't think it'll there was be, a, have a, any bearing on his um, popularity. Preliminary polling today was actually not super great. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, looking at the way that he's handled it. Yeah. Um, and, and it could be, I, I got this, uh, link from someone who's, uh, to the left of Matt Duss on Gaza. Um, so, uh, take it with it with at least a bit of a grain of salt and I just glanced at it, but it was look a reputable polling agency yeah. and wasn't quite underwater on his handling of Middle East crisis, but it was kind of close, kinda close uh, yeah. and sort of surprising yeah. because American public sentiment is pretty overwhelmingly on the side of Israel. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, to a degree that I think people have lost uh, uh, proportion about just because they are eagerly and, and understandably noticing that, you know, People like Rashida Tlaib is just saying incredibly crazy shit uh, yeah. and just the actual congressman. Can I, now that I don't work at my other job, yeah. can I actually say something that I think I told you, but I don't know if I've said in the podcast? You you made sweet love to her? Uh, <laughs> good <laughs> Lord. You know what? You know why I just stopped in my tracks? I just like, my brain, I was like, wait, what? As I could think about, I was like, oh my goodness, I have to get out of this yeah. mental space right now. Yeah. Um, no, I interviewed her and... Um, I think I can say this. I don't think it's going to harm any of my potential uh, future interview subjects. She was really not smart. Yeah. I have to be honest. She was very dumb. <laughs> I just, I just, I just watching one minute of footage of her. Talking it was surprising. On it was surprising. Capitol Hill after there had been pretty convincing uh, pushback against the original claims of the hospital rocket. Yes. Which we didn't, we talked about at the top of this interview. Yeah. We, yeah, we didn't bit. wallow in. Yeah. Too much, but uh, it's a pretty amazing, um, one of the worst media malpractices that I have seen since we've started this show. Which it's does a lot. lot. It's bad. It was bad. I mean, just a lot of Israeli rocket kills five hundred uh, headlines out there, and that, and then you know, stealth updates. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, and getting and, and reducing it. But uh, uh, you know, the BBC News and New York Times in particular behaved so badly and for a sitting member of Congress to come out after there had been 
Uh, and you don't have to believe it, but at least you have to say that there's evidence presented, certainly by uh, Israel, including by a guy that we met when we were in Israel, who's now becoming like the, the yeah. Donald Rumsfeld yes, uh, yes. press conference yeah, of he's the there. Israeli Hamas. Jonathan Cornicus, I believe yeah, his yeah. name is. Yeah. Um, he really gives good. a little, uh, if, if you haven't, uh, follow IDF on, on Twitter, believe it or not. On, but he's he's frequently on the cable news shows, yeah. yes. but he'll give a little like 10 minute thing with his little PowerPoint. And it's actually... Pretty useful, yeah. convincing and useful stuff. Yeah, Even, and there's been I a mean, lot of independent people who have, who have pointed out very similar things before the IDF did did so. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you t- you treat um, any government account of anything uh, with a grain of small salt, and I, I do that with the IDF, as I know you likely do too, and most people do. Um, weirdly, that didn't happen in the first round of this with the hospital strike. I did notice something because you sent me a tweet. Um, from somebody who was like, well, actually, the New York Times did say it was according to... Bob Wright. Yeah. Do you know what the crazy thing about that was? I was like, well, let's see how they handled it. I clicked through. Do you know what that original headline said? According to Palestinians. Yeah. Not Hamas. Yeah. According to Palestinians, which we are told Palestinians are not Hamas. Hamas is not the whole of the Palestinian people. That is pretty amazing that he said, uh, according to Palestinians. But the number, uh, there, was a, there was a really tricky thing that I saw that was on the BBC. And I think um, MSNBC or CNN, somebody, they were trying to be experts. And what happens when people in the field try to, you know, uh, flex their muscles of expertise, they say things like this. A misfired Hamas rocket, knowing what I do about Hamas rocketry, could not have caused 500 casualties. And this is multiple people. The BBC was the the first one that I saw of this. And it's like, but you're relying on a second lie. Like, you're also relying on the fact that they said this is an Israeli strike, number one. And number two, that 500 people died, that they figured this out within minutes while the Israelis are still counting bodies from the 7th of October. And, how, and they always tell you immediately how many uh, children uh, died. It was like, they, and it's always like, you know, more than the original count. You know, 500 people died, 800 of them were children. Yeah. And that is, so you can't trust this stuff. And then, you, of course, you see this. There was a story today about um, an unnamed European um, intelligence source or official. Right. Said it was under 10, around 10 10 to 50, 10 10 to 50 50. is the the number. And yeah. Should be treated also with skepticism. Yeah, of course. All of it should be. Um, All of it should be. uh, I think the U.S. intelligence, and this is more on the record, has it like between 100 and 300. So like people don't fucking know. They do Um, not know. And that, you know, the building was hit and collapsed. That obviously turned out not to be true. Um, But just to give you some perspective here, it was the government of Germany that did this study. And it was only about 10 or 15 years ago that we have a pretty authoritative study of how many people died in Dresden. And they, I think they undertook that because that's always used by neo-Nazis. And the Nazi count, which came from David Irving, who wrote a book about the bombing of Dresden, who is himself a neo-Nazi, um, grew into that role. He was always a sympathizer and then became a, a real fascist. Um, it was 125,000. And we're still having that debate how many years later, 80 years later, 70 years later, and we're trying to figure this out in one day. Um, I, the, that's hard to do. A uh, couple things. One is that the New York Times in their initial report and in the one that Bob Wright uh, from Blogging Heads and other things and who I found over the year, Robert Wright is his pen name, sorry. Um, and I've interacted with over the years and I found him uh, 
to be a, a pretty reasonable guy, but he was defending the New York Times. New York Times used a photo, a huge kind of like banner-ish photo on the front page underneath that headline about Israeli, you know, bomb or missile kills 500, comma, uh, at a hospital, comma, Palestinians say. Um, they used a photo um, of just devastating rubble from Gaza that wasn't the hospital. Yeah, it wasn't the hospital. That is such fucking malpractice. Are you kidding me? Apparently, and again, take this with a huge grain of salt because this is kind of developing as as it happens. I don't know. From what I saw, this appears to be true, that there was a claim of um, a 2,000-year-old, everything said, a two th- or a 1,000-year-old Greek Orthodox church that was bombed by Israel last night or yesterday. Um, that, you know, in massive casualties. And that, of course, um, that has changed quite a bit too. And I've seen a number of people say that is not what happened. And the Wall Street Journal used a photo of people being pulled out of rubble. And according to some claims, and again, I don't know if this is true. This is about an hour ago. So I say this not to enlighten you about what happened, to encourage you to go look this up and see if this is actually true, that the Wall Street Journal, among other news organizations, used that photo of a bombed out and um, I think the Israelis say and other people say that this they hit a building um, next to it, which was a Hamas, a Hamas command center, whatever they say it is. I don't know if that's true. But uh, that has apparently happened again. Now, the, do you understand that in some way? Well, yes, in some way, because the people aren't that are, you know, photo editors and they're not on the ground there. Um, they're trusting people from within Gaza. The people who are allowed into Gaza tend to be a different type of um, photographer. The, person taking photographs from the New York Times was um, apparently fired from the New York Times before for, for tweeting something about Hitler uh, and is now back uh, stringing for the New York Times. So all of this stuff has to be treated with extreme skepticism. I mean, there's it, also just to, to be clear, there's been more than a dozen journalists, I think, killed already. Uh, yes. Uh, there. So uh, yeah. the, the amount of bravery, uh, physical bravery that is, is off the charts. should go without saying. Yeah, I, I don't mean to impugn their bravery, bravery at all. And it's also true that, um, you know, there was a couple of Reuters journalists that were killed on the northern border with Lebanon in a, they were on the Lebanon side and it appears that they were killed by an IDF um, mortar barrage or something. I did then see one of these large accounts saying that the Israelis deliberately, they, they targeted journalists. We don't know if that's true. So every syllable here should be questioned the one thing that you have to ask yourself is if you're so committed to making a political argument about something that's happening in the world right now and making it in the way that is, you know, you go out in the streets and you're banging the drum and you're posting things on Instagram and you're morally outraged and you have a right to be morally outraged. It, 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 it removes you from this very basic idea that you don't need to know the facts now because they're very hard to come by. I mean, they're very, but what's happened is because of technology I mean, you used to get news about Normandy three days later, you know, when the stuff came back from Europe, that you'd kind of figure this stuff out. What is what is happening? And that stuff, of course, always changes. It's not always devious. It's not always deliberate. I mean, there's misreporting in war all the time. Fog of war is the excuse. Of course. How many times have we covered like, you know, a mass shooting? How it like this it, a second shooter always, you the know, beginning is always wrong. Beginning is always wrong. You can expect that here. If it's always wrong in one direction, though, you have to start getting suspicious, right? Mm -hmm. And if the person who is giving you that misinformation is a known liar, then it's on you. Why are you trusting these people? What's our only source? Well, then you don't have a source. If my only source is a guy who's a pathological liar who has no credibility, maybe I should find a new source. The 
problem with that line of thinking, um, to the extent there is a problem with it, um, is that that, and I just wrote about hit publish in between us saying goodbye to Matt and us uh, hit and record again here a couple of minutes later uh, uh, on a reason piece that kind of gets into this. Um, people use that to talk about the IDF, talk about Israel. Um, you know, in after Israel and then the United States uh, came out and said the evidence, it wasn't points to it. This didn't come from Israel, didn't emanate yep. from Israel, emanated from Gaza. Um, we think this is what happened. And, you know, here's some physical stuff to back that up. Since that happened, um, the reaction has been pretty interesting from uh, the surrounding governments, which immediately took to accusing Israel of genocide, of heinous war crimes, of, uh, uh, I think in the words of uh, Erdogan from Turkey, uh, NATO ally, by the way, um, said that this shows that Israel's have no shred of human decency. Yes. Um, which is pretty uh, interesting language. Pretty rich coming from him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> human decency poster child, yeah. uh, Erdogan. Um, but uh, they interviewed some uh, Jordanian foreign minister on NBC. And he said, well, um, you know, like to, re to react to the new evidence, yeah. which suggests that maybe it wasn't 500 people, yeah. not it was just sort of isolated in the in the parking lot. The crater was kind of shallow. Uh, and he's like, uh, well, no one in the Arab world is going to believe that narrative. I had a conversation uh, just like that yesterday. And my response to that was, so investigations don't matter. No matter what, it, they have a conclusion and you're not going to dislodge that conclusion because the Arab world by the Jordanian ambassador, whoever it was, and the person that I was talking to is very condescending is that they're, they're immune to evidence. Yeah. The thing is, you know who's immune to evidence? Yeah. The governments yeah. of those unfree countries. Correct. Um, yeah. who, uh, and in my piece, I was focusing on Jordan, but it's true of all of the surrounding countries that, that issued these non-retracted, mm -hmm. like heinous accusations yeah. or accusation of heinousness or both. Um, they are at the bottom or near the bottom of every press freedom ranking, every freedom, freedom ranking. Yeah. Um, you will go to jail for a long time if you cross King Abdullah, um, mm -hmm. in Jordan. And in most of these countries, they declared a three days of national mourning. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, you know, in Hezbollah wants day, a day of rage, at least one day of rage. And so you've seen these huge protests. This is actually, a, uh, touches on a thing that Matt uh, Dust was saying earlier about how, uh, both uh, Hamas and Fatah are kind of scared of their own populations. Well, those governments are scared of their own populations, too, right, in part yeah. because they have consistently whipped them up with anti-Israeli propaganda forever, even while signing, you know, on the down low agreements with Israel. And, and also remember that Jordan probably has the record for uh, Palestinians killed for Arab governments. Um, the And I pointed this out before. The irony of the Munich attack in Black September is that it's named after the the Jordanian government's war on the PLO, which ended up in the wholesale slaughter of PLO and Palestinian refugees uh, in Amman and outside in Palestinian refugee camps. That is pretty, I mean, th that was not easily forgiven. And it was like, let's get the Palestinians out of here and then they can relocate to Lebanon and this is the same thing when you have all these Egyptians now saying, oh, my God, we got to let the, the aid through. We just don't want to let them through. That's a problem. We don't want them. We just want to. I mean, the way Arab governments have treated the Palestinians is often ignored because the enemy is what matters. And you see that also with the hospital thing. And what I mean by that is the hospital thing. Let's they're still arguing that it was 500 dead. Right. And then you're arguing about the source of that. 
500 dead. It's obviously not 500 dead, but let's pretend that it is. Let's pretend that that number was right. And then the source of that seems pretty convincing that it is an Islamic Jihad rocket. Notice that no one's talking about it anymore because it's not, it's because they don't want to stand on that kind of weak ground that this was an Israeli strike. So you really don't care about the dead people, do you? You don't care. No one in America, to be clear, like uh, in, they're still talking about it as an Israeli strike correct in amman in tunisia and i think they know the truth of this and you know the conspiracy theorists come out oh they just happened to catch a call the interesting thing about the fake call thing this is my i can't believe no one mentioned this because if you this is this is a reference to part of the evidence from israelis was like we intercepted this call uh between two people on the gazan side where they're like oh shit man rocket uh yeah yeah yeah. this was this was ours kind of thing um it shows you the how deranged this makes people to instantly see conspiracy and say this must be created. I mean, to say something like that, you can say that we should be skeptical of evidence that comes from a government that has an interest in this. Yeah. But to say that I know or I suspect without any evidence yourself is kind of crazy, particularly when you look at this call and you actually listen to it. Um, if you're going to create a call, you're going to create one that's a little more authoritative than that. Because what the guys say in the call- They sound stoned. Yeah, they kind of sound stoned like, oh, man, this is crazy. <laughs> Dave's not here, man. Um, so Dave's not here of Gaza. Um, but the the funny thing, the crazy thing about this is that they don't say, shit, I just fired this rocket. And it's, they say we're being told or they're saying it's ours. And they're like, oh shit, really? And it's like, yeah, that it landed. Like, it seems plausible to them, but it's not a call that says, yeah, that was, we did this. Yeah. It was, it was suggestive. So if you're going to create evidence, you don't create suggestive evidence. You create evidence that proves your case. You don't know how tricky these. I know they can, are. they can do a lot of stuff. They can do the, they cover their horns, but uh, they're always there. Uh, it, 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 it also is uh, interesting to note that it absolutely does not, the case that this wasn't Israeli does not rely on that recording at all. At all. I mean, that's that's icing on the cake. It does not rely on that recording. It relies... I mean, you have people who have been surprisingly... Um, I don't know. I don't want to say anti-Israel. But they've been surprisingly skeptical of Israel, of people that are in that open source intelligence movement, the kind of Bellingcat type people um, who do all the stuff in Ukraine. They geolocate everything. I mean, some of them have been been a lot... Well, there'd been an error rate. Yeah, so. uh, but but they can't. They did this too, and they have a. They're usually on stuff like this when it comes to like you know actually locating where they they do a pretty good job, and they came down on the same side. Now it only took a day for this church. Uh, but look, of all this stuff, I think there's something about age here, and I think there's something about young people who are out there marching. I mean, there was a video. Um, circulating through Twitter of, of high school kids in San Francisco, San Francisco yeah. and like this wild bloodlust from 15 year olds marching through the hallways is that when they see something like this and they hear something like this, they don't, I mean, I don't think experience with war or war coverage or seeing this stuff over the years makes this stuff any better. And I think we have to try very hard not to be kind of inured to this or kind of numb to it. Um, but I think there's people, young college people who didn't go through 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, and all the kind of intermittent Lebanon war in 2006 and all this stuff. So it's all very new to them. And I see a number of people posting stuff, younger people who are new to this entire universe. And they're credulous and they're 
looking for outrage. They're just trying to find outrage to counteract the other outrage, which is, you know, killing people at a festival, killing people in their homes who are hiding under their beds, is that, well, let me find the other outrage using the exact moral equivalence between, you know, rolling a grenade into a child's room and um, a precision guided missile hitting something and having what I don't ever like to use the phrase collateral damage, um, people killed um, in that path. And that is unfortunate in war. And that's why I asked Matt Dust this, is that when you, and this is my final point on this, I'm sorry to go on about it, but I've been thinking about this a lot. When you are an, a rational actor, when you're a state actor, when the United States does something like Iraq, right? And everything that happened as a result of that, whether it was ISIS, whether it was terrorist bombings in Europe, or it was, you know, terrorist uh, in, in America, it's root causes, it's you reap what you sow, right? That is always unidirectional and always has been unidirectional. And it's a bullshit, bullshit thing because you have to apply it everywhere. And then you have to think that Hamas is doing this for two years. This has been the intelligence, two years of planning this. Did they not think after they couldn't hold territory, and it's not the goal to hold territory, and they slaughter civilians, which is the goal, to respond, is, it, is everything that happens after that not their fault? Or do they not take a huge measure of responsibility because it's not being, people just say, oh, the genocide, uh, you know, ceasefire, this is what's horrible, it's happening to the Palestinian people. It is horrible what's happening to the Palestinian people. I don't want this to happen to any of these people. It's absolutely terrifying. And I feel for all of those people, particularly young people who have no no skin in this game whatsoever. They have no decision-making power. They can't vote. They can't rebel. They can't join any group. And they're being, it's horrible, right? But we always blame ourselves for the backlash to our decisions. Is anyone blaming the Palestinians for the backlash to their decision to kill innocent people? I don't mean in any way, so I have to cover my bases here to make sure people don't mis misunderstand me, that says like, aha, you did that, so we get to do whatever we want. That's not what I'm saying. But as a response, they, they know they're inviting a military response. They've been in that region. They know exactly what happens. They know what they're looking for. Is that not their responsibility to not lodge a murderous campaign against civilians because they know what's going to happen to their civilians too? It's just going to be the response. I'm not saying it's good, it's bad. I'm not saying they should, I'm not even judging what Israel should do in response to this. I'm not a military strategist. I don't know. Um, and I think people do know, know that there's tunnels here and there's this there. And it's that I don't have access to that information. So I can't make a judgment on that. But when you do something in Iraq and a bunch of people get killed at, you know, in response to that, it's always, well, see, this is what you get. You don't hear that so much now, right? So anyway. Sorry about that long rant. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> I have to bounce. We're going to give you more content sooner than you have any idea. Yeah. I'm going to record some later on today, as a matter of fact. Is that right? That is. <laughs> Am I involved in that? Uh, only if you want to be. Oh. Okay. All right. I did, really? Yeah. Did I? Am I off the Slack channel? Or something? <laughs> what did I get? We got, a, we got a terrorist uh, Slack channel. All right, here. Jesus Live Christ. from Salzburg. I, I didn't. This is a funny way to find out you got fired. Yeah. Well, but, you, you know, know what? Yeah, well, not the first it, time or the last. <laughs> you know, my last job ignored me for two years, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Thanks for listening. Boy. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.